testing one two three i think that's good yeah, let me just i'll just name myself like this i think that I'm, is that how i'm gonna talk you feel good about Perfect. that yeah you sound great 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 oh we can just get going let's do it so um thank you so much do you want to do you want to do the intro do you want to introduce yourself i usually introduce my guests but i think maybe what's the uh what's the what, what's the full name of this this shindig? It's this called operation? Inside the Hive. Thank you for doing your research before joining us today. I, my research is to you personally. I've done <laughs> personal research and I, I vouch and I'm fine. Welcome to Inside the Hive. Uh, I'm John Lovett. And I'm Nick Bilton. Today on the show, we have me, John Lovett. Terrific. Uh, let's, give, <laughs> let's, give a, let's give a little background on John Lovett because that's usually what I do. Cool. John Lovett is a... You're up. Okay, that's not you doing background. That now, now <laughs> I'm who just taking advantage of the fact that you have done this many, many times. Uh, I am the co-host of Pod Save America, host of Love It or Leave It, co-founder of Crooked Media, former speechwriter for Hillary Clinton and President Barack Obama, man about town. You have a dog? Fan of dogs. What's your dog's oh, name? My dog's name is Pundit. Pundit, that's a good name. She thinks both sides are at fault. <laughs> she, thinks, she thinks Trump needs to pivot. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, before we get to Donald Trump, well, we actually should get straight to Donald Trump. So I think we should tell people that that you lost a bet to me. That's true. So let's talk about this bet. Let's so talk about this bet. I, what was my bet exactly? So we uh, we were at the same co-working space, which automatically puts us as Never hipster. say that again. <laughs> we ran into each other at a, 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 a truck pull. A truck pull. <laughs> a tractor right. pull. A tractor pull with those big monster yeah, trucks. Yeah, not, not a place with Edison bulbs and coffee that costs six dollars. It is like seven dollars. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, anyway, so and I and it was it was in the primaries and um, and I said to you in passing, I said Donald Trump is going to be the nominee, and you said, I said no. Yeah, you said but, no. But I, I will I will say that I I took a contrarian position, which is I was willing to bet I. I believed Ted Cruz was going to stick it out, and my outside bet was Ted Cruz was going to be the nominee, and so I liked predicting that because it was unlikely. I don't think I was – I wasn't naive about Trump. I was, I, was taking a, I was taking a bold position. Well, but the bold – I should have gotten odds. That's the real – the real crime is that I didn't get odds. Yeah, it's you. true. It's, well, it was a $20 bet. What, that, I love that action and you knew that. that. It was true. It was a $20 bet. Because I, I, I asked for I, odds and you said no and I said fine. Okay. And then – but then we, the bet also transferred over to when he actually won. And – so one of the things – so the reason I bring this up is because I want to admit that I won $20 from sure. you, first of all. And second of all is one of my beliefs is not that he won because we know he it wasn't because he was the more popular candidate. We know for a variety of reasons. But my big thing is that 91 million people did not vote. Right. Right. Eligible voters did not vote. And so right now we are in a world where people on the left watch Rachel Maddow and listen to your podcast and so on and so forth. And people on the right go to Infowars and Drudge Report and things like that. And never the two shall meet. And there is absolutely no way – and correct me if I'm wrong here – but there's no way of convincing these other sides to change their, their sides. How do we get that 91 million people to, to vote? So let's break that into – so I think the the – Divide on the media is a separate related question. But just even the premise of what you're saying, right, on the left, we, we like uh, partisan bias 
but fact-based, as intellectually rigorous as we can get our liberalism, right? That's the left media. Yeah. And then what you cited as the right media is garbage. You start flaming, lying garbage. And that's the equivalence you drew today. Yes, right? but 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 if but you what? Go, if I was sitting across from someone who on who had a different viewpoint from you that was a Republican or something like that, they would say the same thing about the left. They would not. Yes, they, they would. would. No, no, no. There there is a there is certainly a a kind of bastion of I think more rigorous thought on the right. And some of the pathologies on the right exist on the left, but not to the same degree. It is not intellectually honest. I don't care what perspective you're coming from to compare Rachel Maddow to Breitbart. Now, no, you, no. now people at the National Review, yeah. now National Review runs the gauntlet from uh, smart intellectual, like National Review kind of runs all the way from Breitbart in its <laughs> rigor and racism all the way to, I think, really smart, reasonable people, right? So you, you kind of go to the more reasonable end of National Review, and I think then we can have an honest conversation of the ways in which Rachel Maddow and Chris Hayes and Pod Save America and others that try to come at things in an intellectually honest way, but from the left mess up, right? Don't see their own bias or kind of accede to certain certain kind uh, certain accepted wisdoms on the left that aren't fair. Right, I'll, I'll concede that. Yeah, but there's no equivalence between between right wing radio, Rush, Fox News, and its worst offenders, uh, and what happens on the left. There's just no equivalence. Well, there's there's, there's Amy Goodman and things like that that but, are. But even that, like that's further to the left. Look, the the two sides have different vices. I would, say, you know, on the on the right, there is uh, um, there's these vices of grievance and hate and fear and racism. On the left, you have a different set of of vices that are more around sanctimony uh, and, you know, hiding behind a fence, what have you. But there, but there there really isn't an equivalent. There is no equivalent to what happens at Breitbart, Infowars, the worst the worst offenders at the federal at the Federalist, and and other of parts of the dregs of the right. There well, just is let me no just equivalent. Uh, let me ask you a question. So this I want to get your voter thing, but I don't. I'm not. Yeah, well, let's go, we'll get to the voter thing in a second. I I do have a question that. I, I had, um, was speaking to someone, an executive at a at a tech startup in in San Francisco, and we were talking about the left and uh, the you know and feminism on Twitter and things like that, and how um, there has been such this push. And I and this is the one thing where I do kind of agree with people, certain people who I don't respect in any way, shape, or form, um, that there's been this push for political correctness, which has in turn partially helped create the alt-right. Do you agree with that? No. Uh, I don't I don't I don't agree with that. I that that uh, do I think that there are problems on the left uh with political correctness? Sure. I think you'd have to be kidding yourself to not see overreach at times. Uh that being said, also what's happening happening in our politics and in our culture is as we've knitted together as a society and as social media has made it possible for different voices to come to the fore and say, here's how this makes me feel, we're grappling with a lot of uncomfortable truths about our culture. And uh, some of that is a lot of systemic inherent bias and racism and sexism uh, that we weren't able to see clearly. I mean, one thing that happened I thought was fascinating just this past year, there's this mini series on OJ yeah. on FX. 
And there's this episode about Marsha Clark. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the most fascinating hours of television I've ever seen because we're talking about the 1990s. And all of a sudden we're like, holy shit, we've, we've actually, we've come a long way even in this you know decade and a half on how women are treated in public. And there's still a ways to go. Now, do I think sometimes people go too far? Do I think sometimes there's a kind of call-out culture that says, oh, this person shouldn't have been cast, or I'm going to reject this work of art or this show before I've even seen it because I'm worried about what it's going to say, and I'm worried about offense. Do I th- of course, that's always going to be the case, right? Online, there's always going to be people that go too far, and there's always going to be this mob mentality. That's a problem. But for the most part, I think we're grappling with an experiment of like, how do we live this close to one another all the time? Now, the alt-right is not, the fact that there is an element of racial animus and grievance deep within the Republican Party, and that has given itself a moniker to kind of, you know, whatever, put a suit and tie on instead of a hood. Uh, I, I, the idea that you can blame campus safe spaces for that, I think, is wrong. I think it probably emerges from a similar larger trend about, in the same way that Twitter, Facebook, social media allows more voices to, to find each other. I think that these aggrieved, mostly male, young white guys were able to find each other and create a, create a nonsense movement amongst themselves in Reddit threads and in the basement of the internet, um, trying to make their voice heard as well. Uh, and, and I think it's a rear guard action against the forces that allowed more diverse voices to come up and criticize our culture. But but it's not because people online think that there's a ton of sexism that hasn't been fixed yet. So so let's let, let, we'll, let's close up this little part and get to the to the um, to the the voter question. And but with, I want to close up with one question: How do you think this is all going to play out? Do you think that <laughs> no the media well, aspect <laughs> the, the media aspect of it? And this is something that I've spoken to other guests about, and I I am constantly thinking about is um, you know I I. I grew up in England, and while we had, you know, the Fleet Street newspapers that, you know, were diabolical, there were also still rules and things that lines that were not crossed. Whereas I feel like in America, there are every line is crossable, uh, specifically now in the era of fake news and info wars and so on and so forth. And <clears throat> it seems like, you know, just 15 years ago, there was no Sean Hannity, you know, there was no Rachel Maddow, and and now. We have these forces that are seem like they're going in completely opposite directions. And do you think that we're going to come back in, into the middle at some point? So this or? is why I think it's important to not let things like that go. Again, okay. Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow are not equivalent. There is no equivalent to a popular uh, Rachel Maddow on the right, and there is no equivalent to a popular Sean Hannity on the left. They're just different animals. Mm-hmm. If there was, I think we'd be in much better shape. So. I think so the reason I the reason I make that distinction is not to be a nag. It's because I think you're talking about two problems at once, and they're different. There's there's the big problem you're talking about, which is a totally reasonable problem, which is the siloing of information. People seeking out the news that they want. A Republican's Facebook feed looks totally different than a liberal's Facebook feed. We can get the information we want that confirms the biases that we have. That's part of what makes fake fake news so successful. Uh, we're brittle and. Uh, shallow in our consumption. And and when something confirms our biases, we like to share it. And it can confirm our biases not just by making us feel good about our side, but saying, see, a lot of fake news is, see, this is what they're really like. It's the way I thought they were. The way I thought they were is exactly what they're like. So that's a real problem. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's hardest to face about it is like, you know, we can blame the media itself, but the true source of this is consumers who are making choices every day. Yes, how completely. how do we how do we make people more receptive uh, to 
uh, uh, journalism that that treats each side fairly as opposed to uh, partisan journalism, I don't know. I think that there's a role for both. Um, and I think probably the pendulum swings back and forth, like the golden age of of television news where everybody watched Walter Cronkite or what have you uh, was first of all short-lived, but also not everything it was cracked up to be, right? It was the news from the point of view of a of a wealthy, elite white guy yep. uh, that missed a lot of stuff and left a lot of voices out and ignored a lot of problems. So all in all, I don't know that I would trade what we have now for that. Now, separately, there is a toxic problem on the right. And I, I think it deserves to be put on the same level as this larger problem of people siloing their news. Donald Trump is a symptom of a larger disease that has been uh, that has gone untreated for a very long time. It, 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 I, you know, I saw today a person whose name I'm not going to say just because I never like dignifying these people. But it was a, it was a tweet about DACA, right? Which is a really sad thing. You have yes. these hundreds of thousands of young people who came here as children. I get, I got a message yesterday from one who said, I, you know, I tried to get a job on the Hill because I wanted to do public service, and I, they said I couldn't, so I got a job at a law firm to do pro bono work. If I get deported, it's back to India. I've never been to India. I've never been there because he was born abroad, but not in India where his parents are from. And he said, I've never been there, and I'd be deported to a country I've never visited. And that's a horrible thing. And now, on the left, right, I would say the, the shrillest, worst thing, you know, the very like, there's, there's this, you know, that, that this is pure racism. I think racism plays a huge role in it, but we dismiss the constitutional question on the left, right? Where on the right, they say there's this big constitutional question about it. I think that's a place where there's actually a fair conversation yep. about the exp- expansion, expansion of presidential power, mm-hmm. right? Is this okay? You know, on the left, I think there's a fair argument that says there have been other exceptions in the past that presidents have brought authority. Obviously, we can't enforce our immigration laws uh, uh, in full because there's millions of people here. We don't have the resources. President has to prioritize. So he's not going to prioritize these innocent young people who are Americans in every way but their papers. Uh, Then on, on the right, the criticism goes, well, hold on a second. You have broad discretion in how you prosecute. That's fine. And you can defer on certain things. But you've made a new category. You've created a system of permitting for these people. I mean, you've basically written a law. There's a debate there. Right now, my personal view is there's been that for 30 years we built an underclass of undocumented people to do the jobs and, yep, and to, to, to to reward corporations, to reward consumers with cheaper goods, to to make it possible for us to export to to basically run our economy. And we all look the other way: Democrat administration, Republican administration, Democratic Congress, Republican Congress, American citizens. You know, we complain about about illegal immigration, but then reap the benefits. And we built this system. And these children shouldn't be punished. An extraordinary situation demands an extraordinary response from the president. Fine with all of that. But but then you see people on the right they say these kind of the, the 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 kind of animators of the animus on places like Fox News and Breitbart who says um, these liberals they 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 want to ban Americans from buying guns but they want to give illegal immigrants all these perks uh, that to me is part of a system and it is a system of bullshit and grievance that people like Paul Ryan kind of keep just far enough that they can use it they don't want to be a part of it. They don't want to embrace it, but they use it. Uh, they use it, and it starts. You know, you can talk about the Southern strategy. You can talk about uh, the Willie Horton ad. You can talk about Sarah Palin, uh, and you and you could talk about the birther movement. You could talk about Donald Trump keeping black people out of his apartments, him leading the birther movement, and then it leads to this, where he comes down the the escalator and says they're sending rapists and all the rest. So. Uh, 
uh, that to me, that to me is central to all this. Okay, so I completely one thousand percent agree with you. What have the Democrats? We we in hindsight we can see this, right? Um, we can see how we got here. Uh, you can lay out all those all those pebbles that that take us to 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 the to the front of of Donald Trump at the White House. Why did the Democrats not do anything in the process? What do you mean do anything? In the well, process? It, 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 do what? To who? And where? And why? And when? Well, that's exactly what. My, what that's my question. Well, what Democrats, what process? What is the Democrat? What? what, what the, the, okay, let's let's. If you want, okay. Here's a, a better way of looking at looking at it. Right now, it seems. From oh, the, the Democrats. They what, said. What are, but it's it's a complete mess. It's a total mess. It's a total. Democrats mess. have failed completely. Yes. Okay, we agree. Uh, but, but so, but that. that <laughs> but the, I believe no. they failed for the last for the last X number of years. I mean, I, here's I what here's here's what I think. This is the reason to get specific is because I, I think you won the bet uh, because your cynicism was rewarded. That 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 that's one of Trump winning was a boon to people who took the cynical position. You were right, but 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 what you but what I but I also think comes out of that cynical position is like throw your hands up and say, ah, oh, the Democrats, you know, they'll never get it. They always blow it. The same country that elected Donald Trump elected Barack Obama twice. Oh, I'm now, not saying that they never get it. They ne- that they're never going to get it because th- it, she won the popular vote. I mean, sure. it, it was it was a complete fluke that he got it. But what I believed and what I still believe, which will happen in 2020, unless the Democrats get their shit together, which I don't actually know if they will be able to, is that that the Republicans know how to take advantage of that by focusing. On these issues of abortion and things like that, not on any big issues that we actually should be caring about, but that that is what that is the way that they are going to get people to the polls versus Democrats. Who so I think that's right. But uh, however, I, it's it's worth talking about why Donald Trump, what it means for Donald Trump to be a fluke. In many ways, I think the most helpful way to understand. Trump's presidency is to think of him as a third party, to think of him like yes, Ross Perot, completely. that he went within the Republican Party. But in a lot of ways, you know, the U.S. sort of has kind of four movements, right? If we if we were at a parliamentary system, we'd have a national front led by a Trump-like figure. We'd have a conservative party led by a Paul Ryan. We'd have a, a center-left party led by a Barack Obama. And we'd have a left party left, led by like maybe Elizabeth Warren or, or Bernie, Bernie Sanders. Sanders. Yeah, But we don't. Uh, so... Donald Trump kind of brings together the reformist message of a Perot and the racial grievance and animus that, anim- that, that, that brought people like Pat Buchanan to the fore. It kind of smashes those things together and, and obliterates the Republican primary. In, comes in, uh, attacks – you know, you remember he attacks these dogmas on Iraq, on trade, on immigration. In many ways, the, 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 the platform he, he, he succeeded on was one that attacked the premises, the premises that both parties embraced – Immigration reform and trade. Uh, that's that's I think central to the, it. The other platform, just to, an aside, is I think that one of the things that he ran on was that you have a massive number of people in the country who have tried Barack Obama, who have tried this person, have tried Bush, and and none of it worked. And they were like, "What the hell? We have nothing to lose." But th- so that's all connected to me. So the 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 argument on trade and immigration. And the overall argument that D.C. is broken and, and I alone can fix it are connected because immigration and trade are a way of saying the consensus in D.C., D.C. logic, the way D.C. works, it's failing you. You don't see the benefits. They don't care about you. Uh, you hear the same old tired rhetoric. I mean, Donald Trump standing on that stage 
uh, normal political words kind of bounced right off of him because people stop listening. They don't they don't trust these words. And 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 the point I was going to make about so so the reason I think that's important to, to to mention is when you say can Democrats get their act together, what I think is actually happening is we have these giant systemic changes in our economy and our society, uh, automation, globalization, uh, consolidation of firms, uh, and even though the economy is ostensibly doing well, there's incredible uncertainty and dislocation and a lack of di- – people feel a loss of dignity in their lives. They feel a loss of, of dignity in their jobs, of control over their own destiny in their jobs. We all feel it, whether it's dealing with a cable company or, or, or getting, a, getting a cell phone or flying on an airplane that we've somehow ceded power to these massive unaccountable companies that sap us of the control and power we used to feel as citizens of this country. And so what happens? Well – the Republicans' answer to this has been deregulation, uh, lower taxes, growth will grow our way out of this problem. Uh, that's wrong. It just doesn't work. It's, it's not a good answer uh, because we've seen growth and we've seen what happens when growth doesn't accrue to the majority of people. Then you go to the left and, and Democratic answers have been toward the problem. But raising the minimum wage, readjusting the tax code to make it more progressive, uh, these are steps that are – are a response to a structural problem, but not addressing the structural problem. But so one of the things that I think is really good to your point about what Democrats can do is there was this rollout of the better deal. You see that Chuck Schumer laid out this better deal and he got made fun of for the slogan and we made fun of him for the slogan. You know what? I don't even want to pause. I don't want to pause because Pundit's going to come in and it's going to be fine. Pundit the dog is about to walk in because he clearly, is he he? She. She's a she, has lots of opinions on this. And so we're not even going to pause as Pundit the dog walks into the room. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. I'm James Andrew Miller, and I want to introduce you to a new podcast called Origins as we relive indelible turning points that went down in cultural history and changed it arguably forever. We'll open Origins with a five-episode cycle digging deep into Curb Your Enthusiasm, We'll hear from more than a dozen key players who retrace how Curb evolved from mere smash hit to a turning point in television. You can find the Origins chapter on Curb Your Enthusiasm when you search and subscribe to Origins with James Andrew Miller wherever you listen to podcasts. I once heard a story about a guy who used to stop at flower stores and buy the person behind the counter a single flower. When a friend asked once what he was doing, the flower buying man replied that no one ever buys flowers for the person who sells them. I love that idea of just giving someone flowers for no reason at all. And Pro Flowers, my sponsor this week, does too, which is why they're offering 20% off any of their summer rose bouquets or any of their bouquets over $29. It doesn't have to be for a birthday or a holiday. It can just be because. Pro Flowers is the perfect place to do this. They have a gorgeous selection of flowers of all shapes, sizes, colors, types, you name it. And Pro Flower guarantees that all of the bouquets will stay fresh for at least seven days or they'll give you your money back. You control the delivery date. Everything about it is just simple. Plus, they give you more bloom for your buck. Get it? Bloom? Sorry, I couldn't stop myself there. Anyway, to get that 20% off Summer Roses deal or on any other bouquet over $29, go to proflowers.com and use the code word HIVE. That's H-I-V-E at checkout. Once again, that's proflowers.com and use the word HIVE, H-I-V-E at checkout. So 
Wait, we're back. Pundit is now in the room. We thought we were recording for the last 10 minutes. Turns out we weren't. But I would say it's five minutes, but you know what? I like another bite of the apple. It's all right. Yeah, you were a little long-winded anyway, so let's just <laughs> let's see if you can do this in 30 seconds. Schumer. So Schumer lays out this better deal. He gets a lot of uh, flack for the slogan, and fair enough, we made fun of him too. But, deep, but inside of that proposal was this uh, idea on taking on monopolies and consolidation. I think that's really important. I think that could be central to what Democrats... Uh, do moving forward to kind of tackle the big underlying problems. Because yes, Trump winning is a fluke, but the fact that that the ground was soft enough for someone like Trump uh, to succeed should tell us that there are big underlying forces we don't fully understand. And I think recognizing people's mistrust and anger and fear and dislocation around this economy means being open to bigger, bolder, less practical ideas that a previous generation of Democrats would have said, oh, you can't get that done or that's not possible. Trump widens the scope of what's possible. So one of the things that um, uh, uh, that we spoke about when we were paused, which I will bring up again just very briefly, <laughs> is one of the problems that I did see and I've always believed. I, I worked uh, 20 years ago, worked in advertising and branding, and, and it was a very sad moment in my life. But the thing that I did learn is that I remember someone telling me back then that Republicans always have better messaging, right? They always, you know, and I think that this was very, very evident with Hillary versus Trump. Hillary had this bizarre, stupid slogan, I'm with her, which absolutely meant nothing. I, it, it didn't mean it was going to change my life in any way, shape or form. Right. But but you look at the Republicans and it's like we're going to make them even even though they were based on lies that America was not as safe as it was, which even even though the crime rate was down and so on and so forth, it was we're going to make America great again. And when I look at that messaging, what is it that they can do in 2020 to fix that? Like, what's the advice that you would give them? I would I would say, well, what can we do in 2018 to fix it? Uh, look, first of all, it's always easier to say tear it down than build it up. Yes. It's simpler. Yeah. Uh, it may, makes it easier to win, but it makes it harder to govern, which we've seen with their struggle to, say, pass a, an Obamacare repeal or to really pass anything in the first 250 days of this administration. It turns out that campaigning on a bunch of uh, deceptive sound bites that are pretty effective at stoking people's anger and resentment isn't exactly a recipe for successful legislation when you actually have to make hard compromises. Put that aside. Uh, one lesson of Trump is people do have no interest in rhetoric that sounds political, that sounds like DC. I think it's a, I think it is a response to a feeling that, DC has let people down. Yes, uh, and so when people hear hear DC words, they turn well, it's, off. It's, it's why the ads don't work anymore. Too. It, it's interesting because it, it was. I remember these moments when Hillary was like, "He's not a real politician. He's never done this before." And he was like, "I'm. Ex- that's. Ex- she's right." And she, he was using what she was saying to his advantage to say, "Hey, look, I'm not like them." And so I think, I think the lesson. Look, we can go over the mistakes of the of the Clinton campaign, <laughs> but I. I you know, one thing that happened is the Clinton campaign put out a ton of good policy proposals. I think two problems. One, I think a fair criticism is there wasn't a simple underlying sentence like make America great again. They were stronger together, but that felt less economic and more cultural. That that rallying behind a simple economic message uh, just wasn't possible in part because it is more responsible to talk about a bunch of different things we can do to fix the economy, but that it's a fair critique. The The, the other problem is when you give a speech about what we can do to fix the tax code or create incentives for more hiring, all that gets covered is the is the one paragraph about Trump. Now yep. that's a problem that we'll continue that we yep. have to figure out what Completely. to do. So but but just put all that aside. Simple, elegant proposals and 
rhetoric that you would use in a bar to talk to a person, not with like, you know, like Matt, you never turn to somebody and say, you know what I think? I think we need jobs for the 21st century. No one ever does that. You know, I believe the middle class should be the middle of our priorities. Like nobody talks like that in the world. So we shouldn't talk like that. And you know, Barack Obama doesn't talk like that. He yeah. has his own, you know, you look, he has he has political rhetoric. He has he has okay, stuff so he's here, heard before. I'm going to ask I'm going to ask let's um uh since we have you here, I, okay. I want to let's come up with the slogan for 2020. I, I the the democratic slogan for 2020 is I I, I have an idea. Why don't we take the sign? Remember the guy from um, from uh, when the um, the anti Wall Street demonstrations were going on that held up that famous sign that was, I think it was shit is shit is fucked up and bullshit. Yeah. What about that one? That's a little negative for me. I, <clears throat> you know, one thing that Favreau says, uh, my crooked media co-founder, is it's not about the slogan in part because slogans slogans only work. We have, we get it backwards. You don't come up with a slogan and then figure out what you're going how you're going to use it. Your pro- policies, your ideas, they they eventually lead you to embrace a slogan. But that's exactly what Donald Trump did. Is he came up with the slogan and figured out how to use it when yeah, he stepped true. when he came down on the escalator, make America great again. I think I don't know what the right slogan is, and I would not want to guess here. I to me, to me, when I look at what people are responding to, I, people are like trying to draw lessons from Macron and France and from. Corbyn in the UK and and obviously as always in American politics the answer is whatever confirmed my bias before I went in right yeah. that that but but I, I so I don't think it's about that I think you can kind of draw lessons and I think the that there's stuff to be drawn from the labor message you know I you know one thing that 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 the labor party said that helped them win was you know for the for the for the many not the few and I think that there's something to that you know Gore had for the people, not the powerful. And people criticize that. It's too populist. They didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't know what was to come. I, I look at I look at what's happening and I, and I don't think we should. So – and I also, by the way, I think there are lessons from Bernie. You know, Donald Trump appealed to the white working class by reminding them they were white. Yep. And I think we need to appeal to – the white working class and the brown working class and the black black working class and the Asian working class by reminding them that they're working, and but they won't be working. They, I mean, you 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 know, I mean, they one of the one of the biggest problems I believe that has not been addressed by any politician, from Trump to Hillary to Bernie to you name it, is the fact that you know if you, there are studies from Pew to to universities that within the next 10 to 20 years, 24 to 56 million jobs will be taken by automation and, and artificial intelligence. So how can we, how can we, how can we say to these people so, that, that they're the working class when they are soon going to be overtaken well, by well, some sort of digital well, thing? <laughs> the robots are coming for your jobs is not, I don't think a very good message, but the, we but, can talk about how nobody has a good answer for automation. But right now I think we, that, that people look at, a relatively low unemployment rate, a growing economy, and they see this, 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 this level of fear out there, and it seems like it doesn't fit. But the reason it fits, you know, the times before we get to what automation taking jobs, look at the changes that are already happening. Uh, Neil Irwin in the Times wrote a really piece, really worth reading, that looked at two people: one who was a janitor. Did you see this piece? I did not see it. One no. who was a janitor at Kodak uh, uh, in the, I believe, the '70s or '80s, and one who was a janitor today at Apple HQ. And both 
make around the same amount. Still um, today? Uh, yeah. Wait, hold on one second. And we're back. Uh, listen, crooked, crooked media, all right, we're fly by night. We're, we're building I see this. I thought you guys were like this, this like, you know. We're scrappy. This big machine, thousands of people working here. Not yet. Not yet. Pundit. Give us, give us a second. Sorry for the so interruptions. Any, so, so, <laughs> so they both make about the same amount. Uh, but the person who worked at Kodak had benefits, was, was a, an employee of the company, got training, managed to, to, to work her way up and eventually become CTO. For Apple, they work for a contractor. And so uh, she's not technically a, an employee of Apple. And the most she could hope for is to become a, a manager of a shift and, and get a small raise. But, but that's sort of the end of it. And I think you see that across the economy. You see it from people working for ride-sharing companies to adjunct professors uh, um, that there's a sense that even though people have jobs, they're not as sure, they're not as secure. You see a drop of, of, of union, private sector oh, yeah, unions I mean, to I, 6.7%. The yeah. point I'm making is the, the, that, that we need – look, we can talk about what's going to happen when automation comes for jobs, and I think that's a huge, huge issue. But right now we're talking about people who are working and feel left behind. And so to me – what I what I think is important is figuring out how to appeal to them, and, and I I don't know what the right slogan is, but to me it's about like an economy for all of us, uh, a politics for all of us, where everybody can vote, like for all of us, and 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 figuring out how to make that case is going to be really hard. It's not just about the slogan; it's about the policies that undergird it. It's about making sure people really believe that you're going to be part of big change, because it's not people have heard a lot of promises and they and they've heard a lot of of political rhetoric that they just don't buy anymore. So com, com, that 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 like for all of us to me is is where I'm at and and about, but but putting behind under that simple elegant big policy proposals that that meet the meet that slogan. So so let's get back to that first question. How do you get those 91 million people to go to the polls? Is there is it a you know they I think that they the one thing that they do share with any voter is with the Trump voter where they think whatever they do doesn't work. And um, and if you had had just a, a tiny percentage of those people that had decided, hey, you know what, I'm going to actually go and vote, we would have had a different president. Sure. I, I think how do you get more people who aren't and voting I, and, to vote? And I, and I, I just want to add one thing to this. The pe- those people aren't listening to your podcast, Right. So how – what is it that – if we really want to make a difference, what is it that we can do to get those people to go vote? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows the answer because there's always this huge population of people who don't turn out to vote. I think for starters, we should make it incredibly easy to vote. You know, We've seen this Republican push over decades for – Gerrymandering. For gerrymandering, voter ID uh, that are uh, – inherently racist but disenfranchise tons of people. I think that includes the disenfranchising of people who have served their time for a felony and are now free and clear and can are supposedly had paid have supposedly paid their debt to society but still can't vote. It's completely anachronistic and morally reprehensible because it's uh, no no shock that that we've disenfranchised huge numbers of of black men in this country in the states where we spent a century trying to disenfranchise black people. Uh, so I think Democrats should not just be against voter ID. We should be for things. I think that should include uh, 
same-day registration, universal registration. I think we could probably get behind a constitutional amendment guaranteeing every American citizen the right to vote and make that a part of our platform, whether we pursue it nationally or at the state level. So I think that's really important uh, beyond just making it easier to vote. You know, how do you convince somebody who feels as though politics makes no difference in, no, makes no difference in their lives that they're wrong? And they are wrong. They oh, are they're wrong. completely wrong. They are wrong. Very wrong. And it's a really hard question. I think Barack Obama had the capacity to reach some of those people, and there are people who turned out to vote for him. I think uh, people who have been outside of the system, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump or Ross Perot has been able to do that, uh, or Nader, or, you know, from the left and right, that, 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 that people who feel as though the two parties don't speak to them. I think it's about charismatic, charismatic candidates. I think it's about, again reaching people with something that they can really grab onto. That's not about a uh, not about a tax credit you get at the end of the year, but about like, I'm, I'm going to help you. Here are the things that I'm going to do for you, the nuts and bolts of what a, a simple, elegant proposal can do in a person's life. And, and beyond that, you know, I don't know. One of the great challenges is understanding why participation has fallen so low. And it's, it's probably a vicious circle with the failures of D.C. to answer big problems. So I, I'm actually going to show you a picture now. People on the podcast won't be able People to see this. People love uh, when there are pictures. They That's do. That's what we've learned. On, on podcasts. People love I, hearing I, I descriptions to, of pictures. I want you to look at this picture. And there's, I think, about 40-something people in this picture. You want to read off some of those names that you see? You probably recognize some of them. I feel like this is a quiz. All right. I'm going to go from <clears> left just, to just, right. Yeah. Just read off like 10 randoms. Mm. You don't have I to see, guess that. You don't have to know them all. Just I see a Klobuchar, a Booker, a Cander, a Castro. I see a uh, Gillibrand. Go I to see the a end. Chafee. Is yeah. that a Lincoln Chafee? I see yeah. Bernie. I see The Rock. I okay, see Mark Warner, Elizabeth so, Warren. So Elizabeth the, Warren. Is this alphabetical? No, uh, this no is, it's not. I see Mark Zuckerberg. I see Andrew. Don't hand me something and then want okay, to back. Now, Andrew Cuomo. Why no, no, are we no, no, doing I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. W- what do all these people have in common in this on this photo on my phone that I'm now showing you? Uh, they uh, terrible all, taste in neckties. They're all potentially going to be running for president on the Democratic ticket oh. in 2020. Oh, I didn't realize that until yeah. this moment. Until that moment, yes. Well, so subtle. So, 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 so this thank you is, very much. This is I'm, I'm a professional. So no, my, here's my question. I'm on my heels next. So here's my question. Uh-huh. How, you know, one of the reasons that Trump was able to come up um, in, in 2016 was because there were 17 candidates on the stage. Right, and he was able mm-hmm. to kind of lob them off one at a time. If there were if there were three, Trump would never have have happened. If one if one other person, I'm not gonna. If one other person on that stage, yeah, uh, could have uh, held their own against him, uh, that person would have been able to emerge. So, so who do you think, out of this long list of people, will be will be the candidate in 2020? First of all. If you, I mean, do you really? I'm not answering that question. No, come on, I, answer the question. I, no, I don't know. Okay. I really, sincerely. Who would you like it to be? I sincerely don't know. I'm not. I'm not bullshitting you. I do not have somebody yet. Okay. I first of all don't. I'm. I joke about this whenever we've talked to some other people on that list, which is we're not talking about 2020. I've got a bracket in my mind, and you're on it. A March Madness bracket, something March that I, Ma- I, I rem- good, I'm relearn about every March. Uh, I don't know who that's the person should be. Ba- baseball. It's it's a it's a bas- no Nick. It's basketball. Got it's it. a college basketball. College basketball is this thing where it's this billion dollar in- industry, but the players don't make money because they're students. Got it. Uh, it's uh, and it's not not totally insane. Got it. It's a they're professional athletes, but they but they volunteer for the teams. Oh. Uh, other people make millions, but, Got it. but not the players. It's this really interesting society we have where the players 
don't make any money. In fact, if they get money, they're kicked off the teams. Wow. It's fascinating. The coaches, they make seven figures. The networks make eight figures. But the players, I don't know if you know that the players don't make a dollar. Isn't that fascinating? That's fascinating. They hope that they're good enough to go on to the NBA or to get sponsorships. Maybe. Who, That's so what how they do, do they it's, pay it's, their bills? Uh, well, they, 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 uh, they, they, I assume they live in student housing or they don't pay their bills. Wow. Well, that it's, was um, okay. It's bullshit. Let's t- no, let's so put the march that aside. That makes me crazy. I don't. No, it's fast. I don't follow I no the idea. sport of basketball, but I don't understand why we have an indentured servitude system for the players because they're very talented and 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 they seem to deserve better. Uh, I don't care about 2020, and I'm talking about 2018 right now. But the but I think the fair question to ask is who can you picture standing next to Donald Trump in a debate stage, and who do you think can go toe to toe to him, toe to toe with him? Uh, Somebody made this point. I think it was a, I think it was somebody who was a, a writer for Mother Jones during the election, during the primaries, and said uh, a lot of these Republicans are DC good, but Trump is Hollywood good, and that's important to remember. So who of these people could stand up to him? I think a lot of them could. I think they'd be different, right? I think they'd, you know, don't forget. Hillary Clinton won, won, I think, those debates. Uh, you know, we can go back and forth of what that means. You know, people said Al Gore won debates, but then it didn't help him in the polls. Well, but... Hillary Clinton won her debates among Democrats and Trump won them among Republicans. Well, that's always the case, but that, yep. that's always true. But I think people people came away. She Her polls went up after those debates. She did well in those debates. I can't remember. Now, now it's all sort of a blur of a knot in my stomach. But at the time, I remember, <laughs> you know, I think she did better in two of them than one of them. But all in all, I think she came away. Uh, really well in those debates. Um, it ultimately, uh, I don't know, it didn't uh, matter enough. But uh, because she lost. But who can stand up? Who can stand up with? To, uh, who can stand up against Trump in those? Is those debates is the question. And, and I think a lot of them can. They, a lot of them have different versions of it, right? You know, whatever a a, a senator, a, a, a female senator standing up there is going to be very different than the Rock. And I don't believe Rock will be, the Rock will be the Democratic nominee. Yeah. But then again, I don't want to bet you. <laughs> I was about to say you want to bet twenty because I'm out of the prediction business. But I actually think you it, want to talk about 2020, but it is a waste of time right now. We should be talking about 2018. I but I think that the Republicans are talking about it, and the, we I think I was talking about it. Yeah, I think that they're him? planning for it. Planning you know? what? <clears throat> planning, planning what? Something. It's not a primary. It's either well, maybe it is a primary. Okay, let's let's just let's be let's let's do a, let's a last what? let's do a last Trump question. Okay, and then we're gonna move on. Okay, to way more exciting topics. How long does your show usually run? Two hours? What are we doing here? Uh, we've only been going about about thirty five minutes or oh, so. Feels so longer. We just can kidding. do we'll do another fifteen minutes, and <laughs> no. then we'll let you and Pundit I'm, go for a walk I'm, and go pee in the bushes I'm, together. I'm yours for as long as you want me, Nick. Okay, so how does how does the Trump presidency end? Do you think he gets impeached? Do you think he screws up some way and, and trips up? What do you think happens? I'm I am not in the prediction business. Okay, let's Nick. pretend that you are for this show. No, no, no. Do you think? Uh, here's. Do you wanna, I want to. I want to make more money here. <laughs> There's a, nobody knows how this story ends. Uh, I will. I will say two things. I will say one: the single most important thing we can do as a country uh, is win the House in 2018, mm-hmm. because we can't decide what Trump does, but we can decide what we do. And winning the House in 2018 is a surefire way to hold Trump accountable uh, with hearings and to finally have, finally put an end to this devil's bargain where uh, Paul Ryan is cool with Donald Trump's head so long as his tiny little hand can sign legislation, right? That that deal, we have to bust that deal. And that means winning the House and, and then things really can change. Um, uh, second, I don't know how the Trump administration ends. The, the There's a single period of time which I'm, uh, that I, that 
that I'd be lying if I said doesn't keep me up sometimes that I don't think about, which is the period of time uh, after it's clear in one way or another in one way or another that Donald Trump will not be president anymore and the day he's not president anymore. That period of time where he is yep. still at the helm but has lost or is going to leave office, I'm afraid of that time. And I, I don't know what to do about that, but I know that we have to win the House and have some power to at least use the levers of the Constitution against him as best we can. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Every week when we have a new sponsor on the show, I get talking points from my producer to make sure that my facts are right. When it came to this week's sponsor, Audible, I didn't even bother looking at them because when it comes to Audible, I am a huge, huge, huge fan. Their app is without question one of my favorite products on my phone. They have a selection of audiobooks that is truly immense and downloading them is so simple. I want to point out here that I am an author myself. I've written three books and while I love reading books in print, I find that listening to books is such a different experience as the story becomes even more engrossing. It's like sitting around a campfire. It becomes visceral. It's really truly a different experience. As a result, I'm an audiobook addict, and I download at least one a week from Audible. Currently, I'm listening to three different books, the new Sherlock Holmes anthology read by Stephen Fry, which is fantastic and very, very long, a thriller by Don Winslow, and a nonfiction book called Scale, which kind of tries to explain why we're all here on this planet. Anyway, listeners of Inside the Hive this week are going to get a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial by signing up at audible.com slash hive. That's audible.com slash H-I-V-E. Once again, you get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by signing up at audible.com slash hive. I can't stress how much I absolutely love Audible. Okay, on that note, let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Okay. I, I want to ask, um, you were um, a speechwriter mm-hmm. for, for many years. How long were you a speechwriter for? I wrote for Hillary for three years, and I wrote for Obama for three years. And do you have any – give us a good story from, from your time with Obama in the White House or with Hillary or something like that, a good, uh, a good little tale okay. that our listeners would like to hear. So it is 2011 before the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and I, I sort of took the lead on the joke writing process. And, you know, the Correspondents' Dinner is when the president goes up and makes jokes uh, in front of the press and, and people from Hollywood, and then there's a comedian who does the same – uh, and every year we come up with a ton of jokes and we write them internally, but we go to outside uh, writers and comedians and sort of get a ton of jokes from people and, and then turn those into the, the, to a speech. And we, at some point in the process, we, we, we sit down with the president and we say, what do you want to joke about? What do you want to talk about? And then over the next you know, two weeks, uh, we winnow to, to something like a, a, a draft, but with a ton of extra jokes uh, it's a strange thing, but it's one of the most lengthy processes after the State of the Union. It's, wow. The State of the Union is obviously, I think, the biggest lift for the for, for speechwriters. But after that, it's this correspondence dinner. Not in terms of the amount of input. It's still just a collection of, 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 of jokes. But in terms of time, you have to start early and collect and go back and forth and do a lot of revising. But anyway, a key part of this is getting time with the president because he's got to sign off on the jokes and, and – one thing that was great about President Obama is, A, he has great timing, but B, he, he, he likes telling real jokes. He didn't just want to do political yarns. He wanted to be funny. Anyway, we're, we're getting up to the line. Now, this was the week uh, 
where there was where where uh, Trump was sending people to Hawaii to get the birth certificate and doing a press conference. I think he was in New Hampshire. I don't remember, but that's where we were in 2011. And we had done a ton of jokes about about Donald Trump being a, a birther because he was going to be at the dinner. Yep. And then all of a sudden that Wednesday, uh, or maybe it was even Thursday. I can't remember. It was right before. Get this strange message, and uh, that that there was going to be some kind of a last minute uh, press briefing. And I remember Favreau and I were joking. Press briefing by by I think it was I think it was Carney, not by the president, or maybe maybe the president did stop by. But regardless, we didn't know what it was. But we had this joke. We said, "Well, imagine if it's the birth certificate, because we've written all these jokes and then we'd have to throw them away. Could you imagine what if this press briefing is about the birth certificate?" And sure enough, all of a sudden, the the long form birth certificate at long last is produced, and it's crazy. And then all of a sudden, we realize like actually. This is kind of better. Now we can really land to it. So we made this video where it's uh, where we use the Hulk Hogan song, I Am a Real American, and we flashed the birth certificate on screen. We bunch wrote a, a ton of jokes about Trump. I ended up getting on the phone with Judd Apatow, and we wrote a whole series of jokes about uh, The Apprentice. And But we couldn't get time with President Obama. There had been, I think, a series of storms. He also had to visit NASA for to see to, to visit uh, and see the shuttle launch or the shuttle launch was canceled, but he was still going anyway. Uh, there's a ton of stuff going on. And normally we would get time and we couldn't get time. And so we, we really hadn't shown him any of the, the videos we had done, which would take time to edit. We had we uh, we cut uh, we made a birth video and it was a video of, of Simba being held up in the line. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Uh, we couldn't get time. Finally, Saturday rolls around. It's the day of the dinner, and we're supposed to be in at 2 o'clock. All of a sudden, it's 2.30, and Favreau and I are standing outside uh, the Oval Office, and his assistant is there. And we're like, we, we got we to gotta get in. These got to get in. We're out of time. This is important. He's speaking tonight. And, and she just has this look on her face. It's like, no, he's on, he's on the phone with Afghanistan. Like, oh. Afghanistan. Does, the, the jokes, the jokes, we have, we're running out of time. And meanwhile, there's this... Uh, National Security Council uh, staffer who's running the call, the secure call, standing outside looking very kind of, you know, in his job, in his zone. And we're like, well, let's tell him the jokes. We tell him the jokes. He does not laugh. He looks very serious. <laughs> like, well, what's his problem? Anyway, finally, it's like three o'clock, day of the dinner. We're out of time. The door opens and, you know, the president's got a football in his hand. He's like, come on. Uh, so we go in and we sit down. Uh, uh, Favreau, Axelrod, uh, and 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 me, and we uh, just go through the jokes. There was this one joke. Now this was during where the Republican primary was going to have like Tim Pawlenty in it and a few other people whose names now escape me. But we had a bunch of jokes about how they weren't from the U.S. or that they were going to have these problems in their primaries. And one of the jokes, so we, I think we said that Michelle Bachman was from Canada, and then we had this one joke that said Tim Pawlenty. You know, your primary, your voters may have a problem once they find out your full name is Tim Osama bin Pawlenty. <laughs> and uh, uh, <laughs> and the president looks at he goes, that feels kind of stale. Can we make that something more more up to date? How about like Mubarak? Like, all right, well, we're out of time, and that's your one of your few edits, and you won the electoral votes. I mean, it's not as good a joke, but what are we gonna do? I think I probably said that, and then somebody elbowed me. But we said, all right, fine. So we change it to Mubarak. We show him the videos. He laughs. He's really good. He, he does the Apatow uh, riff that we had worked on, and he it's hilarious, making fun of uh, Trump for The Apprentice. We're in great shape. 
Uh, he does the dinner. It's a huge success. He tears Trump to pieces. I don't know if you've been following the news, but that was the end of Trump. We never heard from him again. And uh, anyway, the next day, uh, we find out the president's called a press conference for 10.30 p.m. on a Sunday or 10 p.m. on a Sunday. And I look down at my phone and I get a draft of a speech from Ben Rhodes that says draft remarks on the capture and killing of Osama bin Laden. Wow. And we realized that the, the secure call with Afghanistan that was really crimping our joke writing was with with the general on the ground about the order to conduct the raid on Abbottabad. And all of a sudden, you know, Favreau and Axelrod and I realized that we were like three like people on, you know, three Seinfelds who'd wandered into a Tom Clancy novel being like, we got to write the jokes, you know, <laughs> it's like ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous, a reminder that, and even in hindsight, you know, the president tossing the football, he had this incredibly relaxed thing, but it was, it was compartmentalizing because he was in the middle of this incredibly important and serious and difficult decision while the correspondence center was going on. Wow. It's, it's amazing because, uh, um, there's a, I don't remember where I saw this. Maybe it's the Roger Stone documentary. I don't remember. But there's a documentary out there um, about Trump. Uh, and there's a belief that that correspondence dinner was the thing where he was. He said, I'm going to seek my revenge and, and run for president. So you, it's your fault. Thank you so much. Uh, no. Uh, maybe. Slightly. Look, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm joking. No, 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 no. It, but, yeah. but, but I think there is a, a part, part of that that's that's reasonable, which is part of Donald Trump's appeal is, despite the fact that he is a billionaire born with a silver spoon in his mouth, he carries himself with the grievance and chip on his shoulder, and and like a guy that has something to prove, uh, which is, I think, part of his appeal. Yes, and whether it's. <laughs> Going to the correspondence center, even though you're going to be ripped to pieces, and also, by the way, he like he he went after Seth Meyers after that too. Trump did, uh, because Seth went after him. Or inviting Maggie Haberman of the New York Times into the into the Oval. He is always seeking the respect and adulation of the people he'll never ever do Correct. enough to earn it for Correct. from. And because he won't, so it's this toxic thing where his narcissism makes it impossible for him to cessate his narcissism. His lack of discipline, his inherent racism, his vices uh, make it so that he can't get this approval. He is president and then, and then he, and he can't have it. Yeah, and then he gets upset and he does things stupid. Character uh, is destiny. Yeah. Um, uh, one other quick question. Um, did you did you work with Obama before he became president? Were you on the campaign? No. Okay. I, I'm just curious. It's like, and maybe you don't know the answer to this, um, but when you know, I imagine that when you start off with a candidate and they're running, and you kind of like on the bus, and it's kind of like everyone's there's all this camaraderie, and you're like, "Hey, buddy, let's get a beer," and you're hanging out and BSing, and then when they're president, there's they are like a a different person. I mean, is it is it when you walk into that room, when you walk into the Oval Office, is it intimidating? Is it for sure? Uh, Yes. And I, and campaigns, I think the political process is, is many ways broken, but campaigns still do what they're supposed to do, which is they put people through their paces. Uh, Donald Trump didn't win because the campaign failed to reveal who he was, right? Yeah. The campaign revealed who Donald Trump was <laughs> and he won anyway, which is 
why we have to worry yeah. about our broken political system. Yeah. The, th- the thing about becoming president is the process that leads you there is one that starts you out as a junior senator from Illinois giving speeches in small rooms to slowly but surely being in front of bigger rooms full of people and higher stakes decisions. You win the nomination. Now all the chips are down. You 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 speak in front of a giant convention. You make big decisions about the transition. And then all of a sudden, this strange things happens. By, by, by participating in the campaign, you are trained in many ways to become president. And the campaign itself reveals the character of the person who will be president. And, and that part of it still works. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, sometimes for worse. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's wind down here and talk a little bit about about your your business, okay, sure. Um, so you came out to you came out to Hollywood mm-hmm. to be a screenwriter, yeah. And uh, now you run a podcasting company, yep. Uh, uh, media media company. Oh, I'm so sorry. How dare you? What other po- things do you do other than podcasts? Oh, we do some Snapchat videos right now. Oh, do you? But really? there's more to come. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, product announcement live on Inside the Hive. It's Hive not. That's just Bill. social. We 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 are right now a podcast network. For sure. Do you um uh. <laughs> What happened? Did you did you do you do you imagine that this is the future of media for you? I mean, what is look? You know, uh, John and Tommy and and Dan Pfeiffer and I did this show, a, a political podcast that was relatively popular before the election. I was a screenwriter and TV writer and pleased with that and 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 happy with what I was working on. I was excited about things I was going to write next. I. I think technically at this moment still have a show in development that I have that I'm not really working on. Uh, but uh, Trump winning was one of those moments, and I I remember just walking around in the days, and we didn't have like a you know a business model or a spreadsheet with the data on how to make money or 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 really anything besides. Two things. One was a sense that Trump winning meant we didn't want to go back to what we were doing before, that we wanted to be in the fight in one way or another, and that that whether we liked it or not, we were drawn into it, that even in just doing the podcast before the election, uh, we had all left politics, but we were still uh, still paying attention, still wanting to talk about, still wanting a platform in one way or another. Uh, and two was a sense that, in part because Trump did win, but a feeling we had long before that political conversation is broken. That there are world-class journalists doing incredible work, uh, reporting on stories and, and breaking, breaking, breaking investigative piece. I mean, the Times and the Post right now are in this, <laughs> this, this, in, this war. Yeah. To, 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 to expose so much and it's ex- exciting and, and important and, and and by the way you see it but and it's not just a print that there are journalists on cable news CNN and, and all the rest that we make we make fun of cable news but the journalists do incredible work every single day and and and, and hold the administration to the fire and ask tough questions and and even places like CNN which I think uh, did a real disservice in 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 covering Trump wall to wall during the primaries have stepped up in a lot of ways uh, but the punditry and the analysis is infuriating it is it is trite and uh, uh, facile and um, uh, uninformed and cynical and nobody likes it 
we, we, nobody likes it. Nobody, nobody comes away from a CNN panel and says, I'm really glad I watched that. I really learned a lot and I feel very good about it. I don't feel disgusting at all. That doesn't happen. Yeah. So we bet on the idea that, that especially younger people wanted something else and something better that wasn't this sort of dead language of punditry. And that's all we had. We had a desire to be involved in one way and a sense that a media company at this moment uh, could be the right way to do that. And so far, I think that bet has been true. We'll see. And do you think been, that... That bet has been correct. No, it's... A, in a, so it, far. It's funny. I was on your show, um, Love It or Leave It, uh, available mm-hmm. on iTunes. Available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. Oh, I have to do the same line at the end of mine. And uh, actually, you're supposed to say uh, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever right. you get your podcasts. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, Spotify. But I was I was on your Pocket show. Pocket Casts. Um, okay, we get the point. Um, uh, I'm going to have to ask for another $20 if you keep doing this. Open the window in LA and you'll probably hear one of our shows. Um I was I was on <laughs> your show awful. and I was walking down the street um, where I live and and I ran into like three neighbors. It was a Saturday morning and I'd done your show Friday night and I ran into three different neighbors walking their dogs with headphones in and they were like, oh my God, I'm listening to you on Love It or Leave It right now. And I was amazed that – I mean I, I go on TV. I do all this crap and that was like the – that That's was cool. the thing. That's cool. And I was amazed at, at how far the reach is. But, but – and there's a reason I bring this up is when you look at the data – of who listens to podcasts, it's still a very affluent group of people on the East and the West Coast. It has not hit the mid the the, the Midwest and the mainstream and the Trump voters. Do you think that's going to change? Do you think that there will be a a rise of of podcasting that that does that and reaches that group? Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I think it's a. I think that there's always early adopters and. People who are kind of ahead on on whatever's next, and podcasts have been around for a while. I think they're having a renaissance at this moment, if, if in part because people were seeking a different kind of political conversation, but also we just got comfortable with on demand, right? Like I think podcast. I you know I listened to the Ricky Gervais, Stephen Merchant, original BBC podcasts like more than ten years ago, and that was the biggest podcast in it, and it sort of had a moment in podcasting, and then they kind of. Then, then, then this American Life becomes more like a podcast, and Serial comes along, and all of a sudden there's this interest in it. I think people like getting things on demand. Uh, I think there's room for growth. I think there's still huge numbers of people who don't know about podcasts. I've never heard of podcasts. Like I, you know, uh, uh, like I'll somebody will you know ask like, oh, like what's wh- where where are you going? It's like, oh, I'm going to do this. You know, you going to do this show? Like, oh, what what is it? Oh, it's a podcast. I don't I don't. What is what does that mean? Uh, like, what's up? People don't know. So, one of the things that's funny, you know, people that you hear this, like other podcast hosts, be saying things like, "Well, we need to like be evangelists for podcast itself. Like, we need to like promote the medium." So it's in that phase. So, can it spread and 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 be something a lot of people listen to? Yes, I think it is. It's not. Uh, it's not inherently uh, coastal. All right. So last question. Everybody's got phones. <clears throat> last I didn't have a very good answer for that. No, you didn't have it. It's okay. It's all right. It's fine. Sorry, no one's no one's probably listening still at this point. No one makes it this people late. People fall asleep. You know what? That's one thing. By the way, there's going to be more data soon, and then we're going to see the data about when people drop off. Oh, right now we just see binary just, on or off, and that's it. Listen or not? Yeah, we just listen or not. But but there's more coming, and then we'll see that that halfway through that answer, people said, "I'm going to go check out something else." Terrifying. Um, so now it's just the true fans with you <laughs> and me. It's like it's literally my editor that's still it's listening. Your editor and your dog and my dog. Um, uh, that answer was too long. Uh, 
the um, uh, I forgot my question now. I had a good question for you, but what a mess. I completely come on. What it was. Are we wrapping up? Yeah, we we need one wrapping la- up. How could you forget your one last question? I forget what it was. Kind of a hoster. Yeah. Oh my god. You know what? Though you haven't been at this as long as me because I've been at this for six months. Six months. <laughs> You've been at it for three, three months. So, yeah. so three when months, I'm you, when know, I'm your age, you'll know what it's like. I'll, I'll, you'll have been, you'll I'll have professional about. Oh, here's my question for you. There you go. So I saw you this weekend, and we were talking about how. What happened with me with my book, and it's happened. I see it happen with a lot of other people with their books, where they're booked on a TV show, and then Trump tweets or breathes or something, and you, the show gets canceled, and you know they, it's breaking news and so on and so forth. And and I feel like um, he sucked the air out of the room and everything. One of the things that I have personally been doing is I've been trying to fight that war myself. So mm-hmm. on weekends, I actually delete Twitter from my phone and I reinstall it on Mondays. It's actually really great. That's you should so try funny. it. It's amazing. Um, I, uh, I've i moved some apps around on my phone. So the Kindle and the Instapaper app are now in place of my social media ones. Okay. And so I open up, I read a book sometimes when I'm waiting in line rather than opening up social media. Um, and I try to limit how much news I consume um, because I just feel like at some point it's just never ending. Um, what is your what is your media diet like? What do you do? Do you do you do the same thing, or do you try to consume everything? And I don't. then do you feel dirty afterwards? I like don't what? consume everything. Uh, I, I I I do believe in a discipline of other conversations. So I really don't like talking about Trump at dinner. I don't like it, and and I just I I change the subject in part because it's like, first of all, you know. I, I think I'd feel that way even if, like, my job wasn't following this stuff now. But I just think we all need to remember that uh, it's a big world and a lot goes on in it and it's not all about Trump. And Because forget thinking about uh, Trump this much. We we didn't think about the presidency this much. And by definition, if as a country we're spending more time thinking about Trump, we're spending less time thinking about other things. And that's a problem. Yep. Uh, my media diet is uh, – I. My Twitter feed is my kind of RSS feed. I try to follow – I'm sure I'm following more liberals than I am conservatives, but I follow a fair number of conservatives. I use this app called Nuzzle, which mm-hmm. goes through and pulls the stuff people are talking about in my feed so I don't have to kind of scan through. I can just see the big stories. Uh, and, you know, I try to keep up with things during the day. And over the weekend, I do shut down. Like, you know, I'm not glued to my phone and – uh, the the discipline of the podcast is actually helpful because – so I know that on Sunday night, I'm going to catch up on everything because we're going to record on Monday. And then Thursday and Friday, I'm going to catch up on everything because I'm going to do Love It or Leave It Friday night. But then Saturday and Sunday, I basically I basically shut off till Sunday night. That's good. Well, I um, – And people should, people should do people that. People like, should. No, absolutely. One that of the things is... that happens at Love It or Leave It is you know, we have this crowd and it's, it's, it's awesome. I mean, people come out to the show. But – you know, we'll do these quizzes about like what happened that week, and sometimes they'll be late. Break, and 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 everybody knows every quote. Yeah. But then one of the things that's crazy is so it's eight p.m. on a Friday night. News broke of some Russia nonsense at six thirty p.m. And I'll say, hey, have you guys heard this? And everyone's like, yeah, we heard it. What the hell? Yeah. Like you guys were at work. You don't do this for a leak. You, you guys were in the audience. Yeah, yeah, How did you even? You're an, <laughs> you're a TV. You're a junior TV executive. What what are you doing all day that you caught this Comey news at six thirty on a Friday? So people are on the news. People are really invested. That's that's really good. That's really good. But like I I say this all I say this to the to the to to, to people that have come to the show, which is 
you you can put your phone down and still be part of the resistance. You know, it's okay. Live a life. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I think it's it's important to be involved. I mean, it's it's important to be involved and to listen and to pay attention and to be part of the conversation. But it's important to walk away. I, and I think, you know, who knows how this story ends? But and and, and fire and fury. But people paying more attention, like, you know, look after Trump. It's good to think about the future after Trump. And, and well, we won't pay attention like this, but my hope is we never return to the baseline of where we were before because this thing of people being invested and going to protest, that's power. Yeah. That makes more things possible. Yep. And, and to me, what makes me hopeful is even in the midst of this national emergency in which every day he's hurting people. And, and one thing I don't ever say is like, we'll survive Trump because a lot of people will be hurt and, and, and it's easy to say we'll survive to use an abstraction, but a lot of people will will pay a price they can't recover. But this collective response, this sense that things are broken, this feeling that we need to be more invested and more involved, uh, that can make a difference after. And that, that, I hope, is something we can hold on to and remember. Well, on that note. Oh, <laughs> and pundit. that's Pundit. <laughs> All right, Pundit. On that note, thank you so much, Pundit Stepping and John, for, uh, <laughs> for joining us today. Thank you, Nick. All right. End of show. End of show. Thank you to my guest today, John Lovett. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thank you, of course, to my sponsors, Audible and ProFlowers. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I'll see you all next week for an even more exciting guest, if you can believe that. 